Good morning, everyone. It's such a pleasure to be with you, coming to you all the way from Vermont to not far from where I grew up. I have two readings for you today, one ancient and one modern. The ancient reading is from the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Uh, it's chapter nine and verses four through 10. He questioned them about the savior. Did he really speak privately with a woman and not openly to us? Are we to turn around and all listen to her? Did he prefer her to us? Then Mary wept and said to Peter, my brother Peter, what do you think? Do you think that I have thought this up myself in my heart or that I am lying about the savior? Levi answered and said to Peter, Peter, you have always been hot tempered. Now I see you contending against the woman like the adversaries. But if the savior made her worthy, who are you indeed to reject her? Surely the savior knows her very well. That is why he loved her more than us. Rather, let us be ashamed and put on the perfect man and separate as he commanded us and preached the gospel, not laying down any other rule or other law beyond what our savior said. And when they heard him say this, they began to go forth to proclaim and to preach. The modern reading is from Sharon D. Welch's uh, wonderful book, A Feminist Ethic of Risk, published in the year 2000. In this excerpt, she's speaking of an ethic of persistence and cooperation in discussing the children's novels of Mildred Taylor. The people whose wisdom she recounts know that action includes far more than merely getting what one wants. They work for as much change as is possible in the present and realize that an important part of work is providing a matrix of love and respect that enables further resistance in the future. So I start my talk with you today with one word, discernment, discernment. That's the word they constantly use in seminary. What kind of ministry was I called to? They told me that demanded discernment. What can I preach that will speak to my congregants about what is divine in them? That's to be discerned before it can be spoken, and so on. In seminary, no one is paralyzed by the choices they face. They are just in a period of discernment. The constant call to discernment presumed that it's hard work to distinguish spiritual truths from the background no noise of daily life. Thus, it's with a, a certain amount of pride that I can report to you that I very quickly discerned one unexpected thing about myself in seminary. I am a ladies' man. Not in the sense that I'm better at ministering to women or that I find the, the joys and concerns of women more compelling than those of men or other gendered congregants. No, I mean that women loomed large in every step along my path to ministry and continue to do so today. I'm, I'm currently kept afloat in Middlebury by a predominantly female staff, a female-led board of directors, a female-led council of ministries, and a female-led worship team. The interim minister who helped prepare my congregation for my arrival in 2012 was Reverend, Reverend Emily Melcher. And she was hired following a successful nine-year period in which the Reverend Johanna Nichols grew the congregation 
and led it through the capital campaign that built our beautiful sanctuary. Several women played pivotal roles in the early years after the congregation was founded in 1986, including your own Reverend Amy, who was our intern in 1999. My own internship was overseen by the Reverend Allison Miller at the Morristown, New Jersey Unitarian Fellowship, whom some of you may remember as a candidate for president of the UUA in our last election. And my journey to ministry all began just up the peninsula with my mother. She was involved in organizing the San Mateo Unitarian Fellowship that I grew up in during the early 1950s. Being a ladies man made me more than a little interested in the role of women in our tradition. Now, I have a special fondness for women who played important roles in UU history because they had to overcome more than the men in their place. And they had to overcome the prejudices of the male historians who so often diminished or ignored their accomplishments in recording what had happened in UU history. I hope you will consider what I'm saying today in light of our seventh principle, which affirms that each of us is part of an interdependent web of all that exists. Now, we usually think about this web as stretching horizontally all across the world and tying us to everything that exists now. But this web stretches not just horizontally, but back in time as well. Thus, the lives these women led in the past ripple through yours and mine in subtle ways. And I always feel joyful at this thought. And I feel challenged. I hear them calling to us in the words of rank by rank to hope their hopes and seal them true. Now, our first reading today from the Gospel according to Mary Magdalene reminds us that one way we live up to our potential is to make sure that women are not written out of history. Mary Magdalene is a supporting player in the books men chose to include in the Bible, but this gospel that was left out of the canon survived to tell another story. Let it be a lesson to us as we pay more attention than ever these days to also recovering the history of Black Americans, Indigenous people, and so many other marginalized folks. With that in mind, let me introduce you to the Reverend Phoebe Ann Coffin Hannaford. Phoebe was destined to be a feminist almost from the moment of her birth in 1829 on Nantucket. A descendant of the island's first European settlers, she grew up attending Quaker meetings in which both women and men spoke freely. Her much older first cousin, Lucretia Mott, was an internationally famous anti-slavery and human rights activist. Another Nantucket cousin, Mariah Mitchell, was a Unitarian in, later in life who gained renown as a pioneering female astronomer. But Lucretia was Phoebe's childhood idol and Phoebe had her own anti-slavery poem published when she was only 13. I began working as a teacher when I was 16. The next year, 1848, Cousin Lucretia and her friend, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, organized the famous Women's Rights Convention at Seneca Falls, New York. My first book, published in 1853, was a biography of Lucretia aimed at attracting others to the anti-slavery struggle. I later became friends with many of the women who attended the Women's Rights Con Convention. 
I profiled a lot of them in my best-selling book of biographical sketches called Daughters of America or Women of the Century. You were just 20 years old when you married Joseph Hannaford, a homeopathic doctor and teacher who was 10 years older than him, you, and you soon had two children. Horace, Howard, excuse me, Howard and Florence. Phoebe's writing played a major role in supporting the family. They moved from Nantucket to the Boston area in 1857. That's when I began to get to know many Unitarian and Universalist writers and social reformers. I attended my husband's Baptist church, but I began accepting invitations to preach publicly in 1865 on a visit home to Nantucket. The Baptists were dismayed to learn I had become Universalists in my beliefs after my younger brother and sister died. I read the Bible through new eyes and preached that we had a loving God who would save everyone in the end. And that caught the attention of Olympia Brown, a pioneering Universalist minister in Weymouth, Massachusetts. As some of you may remember from new UU classes, if you took them, Brown had become known as the first fully ordained female minister in the country in 1863. When she and Phoebe met in 1866, Brown encouraged Phoebe to follow in her footsteps. I didn't need a lot of persuading. I used to preach to the neighborhood children in the barn when I was eight. And I would climb up the Brant Point Lighthouse to shout Shakespeare into the winds. By the time you met Olympia Brown, you were editing a Universalist magazine and preaching anywhere you could get an invitation, right? Yes. Olympia preached at my formal ordination in 1868. Julia Ward Howe, who was famous for writing the Battle Hymn of the Republic, played the organ. I was the first female minister ordained in New England. You wrote some hymns too, along with your poetry. That was mostly before I became a minister. Do you want to hear one? Of course, but maybe not right now. I think there's a bit too much of, of God the Father and Christ the King in the lyrics for this group. Well, how about these words from 1852? Cast your bread upon the waters. Why do you still doubting stand? Bounteous God will send the harvest if you sow with liberal hand. That was a popular one. I think it was eventually sung to many tunes. It's great that you felt the loving, all-powerful God was sustaining your work because life really got challenging when you were called to serve a universalist church in New Haven, Connecticut in 1870, didn't it? I left my husband for that pulpit and took my teenage son and daughter with me. And you also took along Ellen Miles, a church organist, as a companion. It would not have been proper or practical for a woman to live on her own in such circumstances. It was important to show that I could be a minister and a mother. I was proud in later years to be able to offer the ministerial prayer when my son was ordained as a Congregationalist minister. And I was the first woman minister to preside over her own daughter's wedding. Still, there was controversy about your relationship with Ellen. I stayed married to Joseph until he died in 1907. But you never returned to him. You moved with Ellen from New Haven 
to the Universalist Church of the Good Shepherd in Jersey City, New Jersey in 1874. And when you were not reappointed in 1877, despite doubling the congregation's size in just three years, the conflict concerned the intimacy of your relationship with Ellen. One newspaper called her the minister's wife. When it was suggested that you fire her as organist, you refused. The relationship was never the major reason given in public, of course. The reason everyone gave for the split was that I was spending too much time traveling around speaking for the right of women to vote and other causes. But the papers and clippings you saved suggest that your private life was not accepted by many of your parishioners. I won't deny that I loved Ellen, but I never talked about it and I won't start now. That's why they call it private life. If we inspired anyone to be true to themselves, that's all for the good, but it was not our goal. You certainly weren't defeated by that rejection in Jersey City. You and your backers formed the Second Universalist Church of Jersey City, which flourished for several years despite being refused membership in the Universalist General Convention. Through it all, you campaigned for women's rights and other social reforms, sometimes drawing audiences that numbered in the thousands. In 1895, you were one of just three ministers who dared to help edit the Women's Bible, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's highly controversial reinterpretation of the Bible that highlighted how traditional versions of scripture had been used to oppress women. Yes, and I was the only minister to contribute a signed commentary. The women's movement faced a wrenching split after the Civil War. The proposed 14th Amendment to the Constitution gave the vote to black men, but to no women of either race. I sided with reformers like the Universalist Lucy Stone and the Unitarian Reverend Thomas Higginson in supporting the amendment. We believed it was the best step forward available at the time, but I stayed friendly with more radical women's rights advocates like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton who opposed any expansion of the vote that did not include women. I helped heal the divisions on these dedicated reformers during the years that followed. And you lived with Ellen until she died in 1914, 44 years in total. Like your mentor, Olympia Brown, you were one of the few pioneering suffragettes who lived long enough to see victory. The 19th Amendment to the Constitution giving women the vote was ratified in 1920, a year before you died at the age of 92. I thank God for that. I remember getting a letter from Lucy Stone's daughter, Alice, when the amendment took effect. Alice wrote that, in thinking of the women to whom we owe it, you come to mind and my grateful thoughts go out to you. Well, thank you, Phoebe. And on that note, would you like to join the congregation and sing a hymn I'm sure both you and our next guest know well? Phoebe was something of a celebrity in her time. I want to introduce you now to a more retiring minister whose renown was more local. Estella Elizabeth Padgham is among us. Oh, there you are. Won't you wave to everyone? Need to tech, need to spotlight Mary. There we go. Spotlight Mary, please. That's Elizabeth. There's Elizabeth. 
Thank you. Thank Bye. You Thank you. Um, Elizabeth grew up and she was born in 1874, the year that Phoebe moved to Jersey City. And she grew up in a progressive Unitarian congregation in Syracuse, New York, where Samuel May, a well-known abolitionist and women's rights supporter, was the minister. Elizabeth, as she preferred to be known, felt called to ministry as a teenager. My father forbid any discussion of it. He thought I was saying that because of my friendship with Marie Jenny, who also went to church. She was two years older and studying to be a minister. He also tried to stop me from going to Smith College, but admitted in private to my mother that it was impossible to keep me from doing anything I had my heart set on. Your ambition to be a minister weren't taken seriously at Smith, were they? No, I got ridiculed by classmates who did not believe women could survive as ministers. Later at reunions though, I was invited to lead them in prayer. Elizabeth went from Smith to the Unitarian Seminary in Meadville, Pennsylvania. She was ordained at her home church in Syracuse in 1901. Mary Safford spoke at my ordination. She was a leader of a group of women Unitarian ministers, including my friend Marie, known as the Iowa Sisterhood. After the ceremony, I accompanied Mary and Marie to Iowa, where Mary had arranged for me to become the minister of a struggling Unitarian church in the town of Perry. You were a great success. These rural Unitarian pulpits that those stuffy male Harvard graduates were loathe to fill were made for strong women, but it was hard. I grew up in a house with maids. I went in and asked the postmaster who was a congregant of mine where I could buy a broom when I saw how filthy the church was. I had never used one before. The word got out through him. He didn't have to sweep the church too long before people in the congregation took responsibility for the church's appearance. But that was the worst. True. I nearly died from an appendicitis, but my little church in Perry got rid of its debt, built an expansion, and started a Sunday school. You had been there three years when you came east to join your beloved sister Clara at a Unitarian conference on Star Island near Portsmouth, New Hampshire. On the way back, you made a fateful stop as guest preacher at the Unitarian Church of Our Father in Rutherford, New Jersey. You took the opportunity seriously. You made sure the church was packed with friends and college classmates. The congregation was impressed. And when its minister resigned a short time later, you were called to replace him. You must have been so good that he felt undermined. I don't know about that. <laughs> Clearly, some people had their doubts. American Unitarian Association President Samuel Elliott got an anonymous letter that read, Now, Miss Pagdam is certainly an attractive woman. She shows herself a girl of exceptional good sense and sanity of mind. 
She has neither the gush nor the fatal tendency to over-conversation that's so often been the limitation of our women preachers. As a private member of the Rutherfield Parish, I should prefer her ministry to that of any of the men who have yet preached. But is it safe to encourage a movement to put a woman minister in New Jersey? Well, you certainly settled that question. You stayed in Rutherford for 22 years, and among other things, built the biggest Sunday school program of any Unitarian church in the East. You became the first female minister invited to open a session of the New Jersey State Legislature in prayer. You founded Rutherford's Clergy Association, and in 1924, you were elected president of the New Jersey Ministers Association. What was your secret? Men and women found it easy to confide in me. I became a sort of minister, counselor at large to the whole community. I participated in protest marches for the vote for women and other causes, but I was most comfortable as a pastoral minister. One young man you impressed later became a doctor and New Jersey's most famous poet. Are you talking about that day in 1908 when I took young William Carlos William bird watching in the Meadowlands, he was 24, about 10 years younger than me. I heard he wrote a letter calling me one of the few real people he had ever met. He admitted the way, he admired the way I plowed through brambles, climbed banks and jumped the streams. <laughs> you were still relatively young when you retired in 1927. I went back to Syracuse to live with Clara and help take care of my aging mother. I once again became very active in the church where I grew up. You never married. Which isn't to say I knew nothing about love. You moderns so often misinterpret modesty. I was wedded to ministry. Yes, you showed that by preaching right up until your death in 1952 sometimes on issues that we still wrestle with, like the differences between Unitarians who proclaim themselves to be atheists and the theists among us who continue to worship God, however they define the divine. The atheists were always attacking the old gods that none of us believe in. That sounds familiar. They called themselves humanists, but all Unitarians are humanists and always have been. Our faith in the goodness of humans was what separated us from the Puritans. I preach that God is in the mysteries of life and is continuously being renamed, redescribed, and revealed. I said, unless a man ceases to think, ceases to grow in knowledge, he cannot help but learn more and more of God. And by man, you meant all humans, I trust. Well, of course, I never thought that women were immune from ceasing to think, although I have wondered whether you are more vulnerable to spiritual blindness than we women. <laughs> well, Miss Padgham, there is so much more I could ask you, but I fear I would end up sounding like a hopeless fanboy. Your life and the lives of the other women pioneers in our faith remind us that even though people working for justice cannot be sure it will be achieved or maintained. They can provide the groundwork without which 
justice in the future becomes impossible. No doubt, you would have been pleased when Unitarians and Universalists finally voted to merge less than a decade after your death. That helped us realize that we needed a whole lot more ministers who weren't white men. Things began changing dramatically. By 1999, women made up the majority of our ordained ministers. We also have a small but growing group of African-American ministers and other ministers of color as well as open homosexuals and transgender ministers serving our more than 1,000 congregations. We've been working our way toward diversity for decades. And you know who benefits the most? White men like me who get to work with so many amazing colleagues to keep our religion vital. I think today's UUs are more committed than ever to what the feminist theologian Sharon Welch calls that ethic of persistence and cooperation that crosses boundaries of our personal identities. With that, I'm going to say blessed be and amen to this wonderful congregation that we have with us today. <laughs>